Good morning. I am Darrell Gunter, your host for Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM. Today, we're very pleased to have Dr. D.T. Ogilvie, Associate Professor for Management and Global Business at Rutgers University in Newark, New Jersey. She is also the founding director for the Center for Entrepreneurial, Urban Entrepreneurship and Economic Development. Dr. Ogilvie, welcome to the program, and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to come to our beautiful campus here to talk about your thoughts on leadership, especially women in leadership. Okay, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Well, you know, let's start with your background. Mm-hmm. Um, you are the founder of the Center for Urban Entrepreneurship and Economic Development. Yes. Um, what brought you to this place in regards to your education and then to, to decide that you needed to establish this organization? Well, I, um, I started out, I got my BA um, and then went on to get an MBA and an executive MBA program. I was fortunate that the year that I decided to um, go for my MBA, uh, Southern Methodist University had hired a woman to be the director of the executive MBA program, and she was looking for more women, and she was looking to diversify that program. And although we didn't quite qualify, uh, she selected myself and another young woman to get into that program, which was very fortunate for us. We were the youngest people in our, our class. There was primarily senior male executives, white male executives. And um, with her focusing on diversifying that, then she brought in a, a number of women and, and myself and a Hispanic male. And that led me into actually where I am today because a number of my professors said, why don't you get a Ph.D.? <laughs> and, yeah, I backburnered that. I, ha- I was doing well in my corporate career. I was one of those fortunate people getting promoted every year, every two years and doing quite well, had access to the CEO and the chairman. Um, But it was kind of in the back of my mind. Then the University of Texas at Austin did a program for senior executives, a marketing program, a year-long program. And a number of professors in there said to me, why don't you get a PhD? And then the company, uh, at some point after that, decided to do an LBL, leveraged buyout, where the managers of the company buy the company. Right. And um, in the process of doing that, uh, they made a deal that meant that the company wasn't making enough money in order to get that deal done to pay off the debt. Right. This is very highly leveraged. That means Mm -hmm. a lot of debt. Mm -hmm. So they came to me. At that time, I was the strategy manager and said, you need to develop a plan because we're making this amount, but we need to make even more in order to pay the debt. And so I suggested that they had to really fundamentally rethink the business um, their basic philosophy was, let's just do what we've always done, but do it better. I didn't think that would work. Uh, one of the consultants to the chairman and the CEO was a professor at the University of Texas at Austin, and he also encouraged me to think about getting my doctorate. When I realized that the company was not going to do very well and wasn't interested really in taking on my ideas, um, I decided to give that a try. Uh, talked to a number of universities and eventually decided to you know, go to the University of Texas at Austin. The company I was with had buildings named after them and had put a lot of money in. T- they were Texans. Right. And if you're from or in the New Jersey area, you might not understand that. But Oh, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I got into the University of Texas, and they were just thrilled mm-hmm. and um, gave me a year 
to decide if I wanted to stay or not, if I could come back and keep my perquisites. Like at that time, I had four or five weeks of vacation, all kinds right. of right. little goodies. I'd been there for a few years. Um, I got bitten by the bug and uh-huh. stayed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the company almost went bankrupt there. Japanese licensee bought them. Mm-hmm. And um, now they seem to be doing well. But some of the ideas that I had suggested were eventually implemented under the Japanese leadership. Mm-hmm. So leaders do make a difference. And mm-hmm. what often mm-hmm. happens with leaders is that they know what they know. They become experts at what they do. Right. Um, but it's sometimes hard to break out of that box and right. see the world a little differently. You know, and that's a key characteristic because I've talked to a number of folks about leadership. Mm-hmm. And they always stress that, it, you know, most leaders have been rewarded for their success. Yes. And even though they the might paradox. have had... Yes. Paradox of success. Mm-hmm. But... How many leaders really understand what they don't know? Most don't. In or- I think in order to really be a great leader, what you have to do is have ways of exposing yourself to what you don't know mm-hmm. and not relying so much on what you think you know because what you think you know is just an experience of one, and a lot of things go into that. For instance, the company I was with had been very successful, but it wasn't just due to, to what they did. It was also due to the economy at the time. They right. were in a booming economy. They created an industry. And so they were. They had the advantage. If you're at liberty, or if you're able to, could you share with what the industry was? Yeah, it was the convenience store industry, and the company was Seven Eleven. Oh yes, oh yes. It used to be known as Southland Corporation, but they changed their name. Well, you know, you and I both were in our, in our discussions before we started yeah. the interview. We we share a commonality in regards to that we both come from families that had grocery stores. That's true. Yes, yeah. my father had a grocery store in Harlem, which where I was born. Mm-hmm. Um. He really didn't do quite as well as one would have wished, but um, mm-hmm. you know we were able to. My my siblings and I go to college. Mm-hmm. And were you able to draw from that experience, from your father's experience in regards to uh, well, uh, Southland? Yes. Well, my yeah, my um, my mother was very astute in terms of business, although she didn't have the formal education. And I think uh, both my mother and father were readers, avid readers, <coughs> and I think all of us or as a result, avid readers. So one of the things that I found with Southland, I was always reading. And what I encouraged my students to do, and what I did, was I would read something and think, how can I apply this to my company mm-hmm. or to my job? Yes, yes. And so um, I would read something and use that. And that helped me to do better at what I was doing. And also, it was quite fortuitous. Um, we had a situation where the company was bleeding red ink, as we say, not doing well in one of their areas. And a number of people tried to encourage the senior management to make a different decision and to let go of that area. And because of the emotional ties, um, that they couldn't make any headway. And I happened to come across an article that I, sh- and I was doing this all the time, shooting uh, articles to my senior management. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So I happened to come across an article that was very relevant to that situation, and apparently by um, our CEO and uh, the chairman reading that article, uh, it helped them to make the decision they needed to make. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, one of the... And there's a, you know, there are studies that show that people who read more do better. A reader, a person who reads a lot, will make two and a half, 2.3 times the income of a person who doesn't read that much. And I load my students with readings. That is a phenomenal statistic. It is. Reading is important. You know, I've, and I've never heard about that statistic before, I have yes. to be honest with you. And I try to tell my students, you have mm-hmm. to read. And I load them down with a lot of reading. But it's important because reading really is the key to keeping your mind open, getting new ideas. 
Dennis Kimbrough uh, talks about um, if you read 15 minutes a day in a field that you don't know, in seven years you'll be a world's expert and encourages people to do that. And then what happens if you read in a field that you're just interested in but don't know is that as you're reading in that field, you'll start applying ideas from that field to your business, which that's a, a spark to creativity. And creativity and innovation are critical if one's going to succeed over the long haul, especially in such a competitive environment as we are in the 21st century. You know, innovation, that is yes. a word that you hear all the time. You There's do. been the book, The Innovator's Solution, The Inno- Innovator's Dilemma, right. Innovator's Solution. Right. What is innovation? If we can, okay. if, if okay, we can digress for, right. a, for a moment. Most of the innovation literature doesn't talk about the key point is creativity. So innovation is once somebody has an idea, how do you implement it? But before you can be innovative, you have to have creativity, a creative idea. And we don't spend enough time, I believe, on creativity and how to be effectively creative. Once you have that idea, then you have to be able to put it into the marketplace. You know, there's, it's such an interesting uh, area. Close to 90% of new products fail, yet we do spend billions of dollars on market research. What's the problem? You know, you come out with something, somebody comes out with the same thing a, a week later. To really be innovative and creative and innovative, you really have to do discontinuous thinking. Most people kind of think on a straight line that's, you know, extrapolation of what they've already done or already seen. But you really have to kind of break through that and get on another level. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you have to be creative. The problem with most companies is that they say they want to be creative, but everything they do seems to mitigate against creativity. Um, people don't get rewarded. People expect that the creative idea is going to come full-blown, perfect, you know, and it doesn't happen that way. It's a series of experiments. Um, it's not failure, but, you know, things that don't work, and you keep trying. It's like Thomas Alva Edison. If the first time the filament didn't work, if he were in the modern company, people would say, Tom? Shut it down. Then they give him another chance. Okay, and that didn't work. Tom, and by the third time it didn't work, they'd shut him down. Right. Maybe fire him. Who knows? <laughs> and then we'd sit here with torches instead of right. um, electronics and cameras and all this type of stuff. I would give a definition of creativity that's very different than most people's, and not that I disagree with the average definition, but mine would be a succession from a series of failures. Mm-hmm. So if I something doesn't work, you try again, and you keep trying till you get it. In the process, you learn. So from even though something didn't work, you're learning, and that learning can be applied to something else. And so we talk about the learning organization. That's part of what a real learning (coughs) organization would have is learning from the efforts that are put forth. Whatever happens with that, it's a learning opportunity, and that learning can be applied elsewhere. Now, when I was at Elsevier, Mm -hmm. I was there for 11 years. Mm -hmm. I ran the Americas. Um, We had a philosophy, fail fast. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, we always, we always yeah. say fell often to learn and, right. and grow yeah. from it. But one of the problems that we had is that after you fail, they were like, okay, right. you got to stop that. Right, exactly, <laughs> which is the problem. And uh, IDEO, which yeah. is a famous design firm, that's one of um, yeah. their mantras. Mm-hmm. Fail often to succeed faster. Um, I mean, and that's important because mm-hmm. just think about when, you know, just think about when you were a kid learning to ride a bike or even this baby learning to walk. Let's take the baby first. The right. baby gets up and stumbles and falls down. Mm-hmm. That's a failure. Right. The baby, do you just you know, put the baby down and say, don't walk again? Right. No. <laughs> the baby tries some more, and the baby you mm-hmm. know, has fits and starts. 
but eventually the baby learns to walk. It's through the experience of doing the walking, trying to walk through the attempt that right. the baby learns to walk. Mm-hmm. Or think of when you learn to ride a bicycle. Mm-hmm. Nobody, I don't think, ever just got on a bike and rode perfectly. Uh, no. 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 But it's through the repeated attempts. You mm-hmm. learn, you finally get your um, physical memory to work so you know how to ride that bike. And then one day you're riding with no hands or with your feet on the steering wheels or all kinds right, of that's crazy right. things. That's right. That's right. But it's through that process. And if we can inculcate that philosophy, that understanding in how we do business, I think we'd be much more successful. How does a CEO who has the pressures of his board, if they're publicly held, right. pressures of the stock market, uh, embrace this, this philosophy yeah. and make it work in, in the environment where they're right. driven for quarterly right. return? I think, um, you know, I guess the example of our company is 3M. What you want to do is create a culture of innovation. For a lot of companies, innovation is only in one area. Let the marketing people be innovative, but don't let the you know, IS people or the uh, finance people or whatever. The, we as, as human beings, I believe, are atavistically creative. And that means that as it's part of our DNA to be creative. And if you look at, you know, if you believe in the evolutionary theory, then we as organisms, you know, we're creative organisms that mm-hmm. evolved to where we are today. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're atavistically creative. We have an urge and a bent to be creative. If you can't be creative at work, then you, maybe you're a great cook and you try different things in the kitchen or you do some things, you build things, you know, uh, you sew, you knit, um, maybe you paint or you, you're in a church choir. Mm-hmm. But there are ways that people need to express their creativity. Yes. It's a part of the self-actualization that Maslow talks about. Oh, I love Maslow. Yeah. <laughs> so what we want to do, mm-hmm. though, is for people to be creative at work. Right. So we have to create an environment that allows people to. The Japanese are like are a thousand times more creative. We think they're not creative. They're more creative than we are. They have this notion of Kaizen, continuous improvement. They encourage creativity. They, re- they recognize and reward efforts to be creative because we do know that the more ideas you come up with, the better chance you're going to come up with a good idea. But if we shut you down when you start to come up with an idea, if we have a suggestion box and don't get back to you and say, Darrell, oh, you know, we submit an idea, nice, you know, here's a ticket for dinner or a theater ticket or something. So you get some recognition. Mm -hmm. So you're going to try again. And that's an amazing point. It's the simple pats on the back that keeps people motivated. Yes. And so you mm-hmm. try again, and mm-hmm. then you start trying to think of ways to be creative. You look at what you're doing, you try to be creative. You think of some new ideas. You see something, and you think, maybe my company can do this. So then you become sort of a font of creativity for the company. Right. And it's through encouraging and, and motivating people and recognizing them as creative beings that the company creates that culture of creativity. Then you allow people the opportunity to try their ideas. So you may you can have some limits. You can say, well, if the idea doesn't cost more than $1,000, go ahead and try it. If it costs more than that, then it has to go to a review board of people who will look at it and you know, try to see, does this make sense? So you can set up checks and balances. So we're not trying to bankrupt the company because we know creativity doesn't come full-blown out the box. Right. But right. you give people a chance right. to experiment and encourage it. So you maybe give them a percentage of their time like 3M like does. With 25% is 3M? Yeah, something like that. And I think Google has adopted that Google as well. Google has done that. A number of companies are now doing that. Mm-hmm. And so that's to the com- You know, Google's doing great. 3M is still here. They're mm-hmm. kicking out products all the time. So if we can in- allow people some time doing work, to exercise their creativity on behalf of the company, then the company will be much better off. And then you can do things like um, 
that used to be done AT&T Bell Labs used to do. Oh, you yes. You can bring in speakers oh, yes. from a wide variety yes. of um, areas that have nothing to do with your directly with your business, but that stimulate and spark ideas. It's a, like reading, but it's verbal. But, you know, even though it's not part of what you're doing, it's part of your, your ecosystem. Right. It's part of creating yes. this this. Um, satisfying and motivating the thirst for knowledge that can be applied mm-hmm. in your area. Mm-hmm. And so you expose people to Italian Renaissance art or whatever. Right. And so then they start you know, thinking. And you don't know how it's going to pay off, but it does. Because the more we can get p- stimulate people's brains exactly. and help them develop new neural pathways. You know, it's actually in the best interest to try this, to, to experiment and be creative because it creates new neural pathways. You're going to love your this brain. one. You're going to love this one. Yesterday on MSNBC News, mm-hmm. um, they had a, a segment where they showed Bill Murray mm-hmm. reading poetry mm-hmm. to construction workers in yeah. New York. Hey, wonderful. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, that's it. So if you can just, as a CEO, if you can understand this and understand <clears> how the brain works, then it's in your best interest in the long run to encourage this. And by giving people a little bit of time, not all the time, encouraging them to be creative and allowing them to implement small ideas of creativity in their work, that helps. The other thing is this notion of sacred cows. As an example, I was talking to Art Martinez, who at one time was CEO of Sears. And when he joined Sears, he was (laughs) flabbergasted at the fact that, and you may remember this when you were a kid, you went into Sears, you went to buy something, and you pulled out your MasterCard or your Visa. They said, I'm sorry, we don't take MasterCard or Visa. You can pay cash or you can Sears. use Sears card. And so if you didn't, w- didn't have the cash, didn't have the Sears card, didn't want another card, what did you do? You left the store. And Martinez was like, he, couldn't, he was astounded. Mm-hmm. The reason is, and why, you know, you say, well, people aren't stupid. Why do they do this? Sears was the first store to invent the store card. Mm-hmm. And in those days, there was no MasterCard, there was no Visa, no American Express card. There was the Sears store card. And eventually other stores emulated that. Well, you couldn't take a Macy's card in a Sears store. So they were locked into this Sears credit card. That was part of, you know, being Sears, that they had the store card. Well, th- the world around them changed. And MasterCard and Visa came out. And, you know, American Express and like at one point Discover, Discover Sears got the diners, Discover card, Diners. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Sears didn't adapt to the changing environment right. because they just were so focused on we are Sears and we created the Sears card. And so when he saw that, now, you know, he just said, wait a minute, we, we, we can't do that. We have to put, allow these other cards. And that made a difference in their business. But that really hurt mm-hmm. them for quite a while. You know, speaking to that point, uh, businesses get into these point with these sacred cows, or this is the way that we've, we've done it for years. We're right. going to continue to do it. In the book, Built to Last, there was a yes. number of, uh, of examples, examples there. But one thing that I, I found in that book was that the companies – Either they had a performance dashboard and they just turned a blind eye to right. it, or they did not have a performance right. dashboard. Right. And from your perspective, it's, Im- it's, it's imperative for a company to have a performance dashboard. Yeah, they should have, but they need to be able to have something that allows them to ch- adapt to times as they change. What they need to really do and what companies don't really do is what are the key drivers to the, our business? So they look at a lot of numbers, but a lot of those numbers are derivative of other numbers. Right. And in the long run, everything flows from people. You know, we, we talk about budgets. Budget is just basically a wish that things are going to go the way we want them to go. Right, right. Um, financial projections, you know, they're, you know, you can get a crystal ball. 
And that's not to say, you know, if you know your business well, you might have a, f a good feeling. But everything that's done, all of those numbers are an artifact of what people either do or don't do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then that gives you, what is the key? The key are your employees. Right. And employees who are as self-actualized as they can be at work will do a better job than those who aren't. Which means you should take care of your employees. You should put them in an environment where they feel appreciated, recognized, and rewarded for their work, and where they're allowed to exercise their creativity. And if you do that, then those numbers will start looking pretty good. Because it's the people on the ground, actually, who know more about the business than the CEO. You know, they have this new series um, on TV about the CEO. Meet the boss. CEO. Undercover CEO, yes. Right. Yes. And CEOs. And I used to see this in my business. It made no sense. In 7-Eleven, we would have what we call store rides. So the stores would call up, and you know the CEO and the senior managers, whoever the district division manager, are going to come and visit your store to see how it looks, and they go and ride these stores. Well, everybody knew they were coming, so <laughs> what we had to do was help the store people spiff up the store, so, so it looked beautiful. So that's not a realistic view when these people come. So it's like a, I guess it's some sort of shell game or something. I don't know what it is. But I don't know. My, my brother works at Mc, he has uh, some McDonald's okay. franchises, and he talks about getting ready for these corporate right. visits. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, so you, you know, dress dress right. rehearsal. Yeah. <laughs> but when you know, on the average right. day, that's not how the store looks. That's right. not how the people are treated. We did a contest, and this will really blow your mind. We did a contest for the best. Um, customer service, the person who provides the best customer service. So we rode all over the country. We would fly out to an area and ride the stores because they wouldn't know who we were and go in and, you know, act like a customer. So finally, you know, the contest was over. They picked a guy. This is the person who has the best customer service in all of our stores, and they gave him a million dollars. That was the prize. What's wrong with that? Wow. You get a, you're the best customer service person. You're the best representative of the company. And now, all of a sudden, adios, muchacho. Adio. Hey, well, thank you very right. much. I'm headed off to uh, my vacation right. resort. <laughs> the better thing would have been to do was to give the guy a store. Yeah. So, you know, companies don't really think. I had a friend who, um, wow. he probably doesn't want me to tell this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. <laughs> he was a uh, security manager. He was in a bank one day and happened to notice the vault. And as you may know, the vault is on a timer. You can't just go in and out of the vault. Once they close it, it's locked till it can open again. And he came up with this brilliant idea of a safe. And he's the one who invented the Tidal safe. Hmm. Which is when you go into 7-Eleven other stores, you, if you have a big bill, mm -hmm. they have to vend the change. Right. So they don't just have all this money in the register. Um, that was a safety point for all kind of stores because it's a, basically a cash business and a lot of cash can accumulate. And we don't want people taking cash to the back room because that could create a situation. Yes. And, and so by having a safe right out in front there, you can't vend it, and you cannot just keep vending. It, it's a timer so that there's time and intervals between mm -hmm. vending. And the mm -hmm. most you can vend is like less than $20 and so forth. So he created that notion. And which led to Tidal Safe, and we started a company, Tidal Safe Company. Wow, very nice. Well, what, what was his reward? Pat on the back. Uh, barely that. I think he got a piece of paper that he could put on his uh, door, like you have on yours. Um, no real reward. 
Mm. Now think about that. If I'm in that company, and he said later, if I had only given the idea to my brother, right. my brother could have been, we could have been rich. Mm-hmm. So think about that. If you're in that company and you come up with a great idea for the company, are you going to give it to them? Right. Right. So companies do have to understand that it's how you treat your people when they do something that makes a difference. Because if other folks would see that, well, so-and-so, Frank, came up with this idea, hey, and this is, this is what he got from mm-hmm. it. That was great. I have an idea. Versus, oh, Frank was not taken care right. of. They actually took advantage right. of him. I think I'm going to keep my idea exactly. to myself. Or, that or, you may sell it to somebody else or you'll keep it to yourself. If it's, if it's just directly pertinent to your, your organization, you'll keep it to yourself. What other companies do, and not a lot of companies do this, is that if you come up with an idea, you get a percentage of your savings or a percentage of the profits. Very nice. And a nice percentage. So mm-hmm. it's not, you know, maybe 30% mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that, 25 30%. It's not insignificant. No, it's not insignificant mm-hmm. of the first year's mm-hmm. savings or profits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, think about that. You come up with an idea, a $100,000 idea. Mm-hmm. You get $25,000. So mm-hmm. what are you going to be doing? Spending a lot of your time thinking about how can I make my company better and come up with an idea that will either save them a lot of money or make them a lot of money. So I'm just thinking about a couple of products that I created for my company at Elsevier that became million-dollar products. Right. And I got to. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, so yeah. you know, companies really need to think about are they really creating a culture of creativity? Right. And, you know, and that speaks – and that's a very important word, culture, because – uh, I find that in most companies, the culture creates itself. It's, it's not a culture created by trying to create a particular type of culture or objective for the company. Well, it's, you know, it's based on what you pay attention to, what senior management pays attention to, how they act, mm-hmm. um, the exemplars they are for the people below them, because we're always watching them to see what they're doing, right? Um, and how they encourage and the stories they tell. Right. Those are the things. And then culture kind of evolves out of that. Mm-hmm. So if they tell stories about, you know, so-and-so. Well, think about Nordstrom's. Mm, yes. Nordstrom's um, started in Texas um, at a time when a lot of Texans were starting to become oil millionaires. So the typical oil millionaire was probably somebody who had little education, but they struck oil on their land, mm-hmm. and they didn't know how to dress in terms of, you know, fashionable dress. They come into the store in dirty overalls and stuff like that. Jay Clampett. <laughs> yeah, that type of look. Well, Nordstrom made clear to his employees, and by himself being an example, that you don't just turn your nose because the people don't look right, because you don't know who they are and how much money they have. Right. Right. So they could look like, you know, they could look like a bum sort of, but they could be filthy rich, millionaires, multiple millionaires. Mm-hmm. And so he t- they tell stories in Nordstrom's about people coming in and looking like that and, you know, have all this money. He tells a story about customer service. Somebody came into Nordstrom's with a tire and said, you know, we got these tires and I want to return the tire. And the clerk's trying to say, we don't sell tires. You know, like, we sell clothes. He said, we got this here, and I want my t- I want my money back. And Mr. Nordstrom was walking by, and he said, oh, yes, of course. And he took the tire and gave the customer the money back. And then he told the clerk, you know, go find out whose tire it is and take it to them. But we take products back. Now, that's a very powerful story. Very powerful story. So that when somebody comes, whether it's your product or not, if you're in a Nordstrom, you don't argue with them like in some stores. Even when it's their product with their label, they don't want to take it back. Right. right. They give you a hard time. He takes the products back. Nordstrom has a very different culture 
than do many other, most other companies. And in fact, one exercise I would give my students was to go to a Nordstrom. Half of the students would go to a Nordstrom, and the other half would go to, like, we used to be Stearns here, because mm-hmm. they were terrible service. Right. <laughs> Both saying they were about customer service, right. but the difference was manifest. Exactly. Exactly. So um, that was a good exercise, a living case study for mm-hmm. the students to see. Mm-hmm. You know, just because people say something doesn't mean that that's what they do. You know, because it speaks to if, if management is saying, well, yeah, we're going to be best in customer service, but they really haven't put the reward system in or right. the recognition system right. in, then as well, far as... sure that people knew that we really do believe it. And train folks mm-hmm. to provide right. that type of training. Yeah. So if you tell that story at Nordstrom's, you don't need much training. You know that if we take tires back, we're going to take other things back. So that goes to that undercover boss is that, you know, bosses at the top think everything's hunky-dory. I said we're going to do X, Y, Z, but you never put in systems to make sure. And then you get surprised when you go into your stores and see how people act. And you you have to go undercover because if you come out... In your suit and touring the store, and everybody knows there's CEO. Everybody's going to be in their best right. best behavior exactly. for those two minutes that right. you're there. Exactly. You know, uh, during my, I did an executive MBA program oh. at Lake Forest Graduate okay. School of Management mm-hmm. on the campus of Motorola, mm-hmm. and one of the courses we had to take in the 16 course curriculum was a course on manufacturing because mm-hmm. we were at right. Motorola. Yeah. And the teacher uh, introduced the class, introduced the book to Gucci, Total mm-hmm. Quality Management. And he placed it on my desk and said, okay, Darrell's going to give us an overview of how Taguchi can be applied in sales. Right. Because that's, that's my background. And I'm thinking, how am I ever going to make this work? Right. Well, I read the book that Sunday, mm-hmm. didn't figure it out, read it again that Monday. Mm-hmm. Uh, by that evening, I had figured it out. Mm-hmm. you got to build in quality into your process. Right. Everybody right. needs to know. Right. What's my role? Right. And, and, I, and I find, do you find that a lot of companies just completely bypass that? Right, they do. And they don't understand the importance of, of having that. The process is very important. And not just building quality to the process, but creativity. We think of creativity as coming up with the product idea, but it's in the whole value chain. A perfect example is uh, in the old days, where did you buy women buy stockings? When my mother went to buy stockings, where did she go? She went to the department store because that's the only place that sold ladies stockings well along comes a little company and if anybody remembers legs legs with the eggs and what they did with the eggs so they packaged the product differently which was the creativity mm-hmm. and that where they the channel of distribution where they sold the price because they're the ones that put it into supermarkets and then the 7-elevens and you know the um, drug stores etc so that women didn't have to go to the department store right they could just trip into the 7-eleven grab their hosiery and leave wow Dr. Ogilvy, it's been a fast 30 minutes. You're going to come back with us next yes. week, correct? All right. Thank I'd you. Love to. This is this is we're going to have to cut if you come back a lot because <laughs> there's so much that you can impart to our guests. Well, here we are with Dr. Ogilvy from Rutgers University and this is Darrell Gunter, your host for leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM and remember, leadership begins with you. Have a great week.